Several years ago, I was uh, at a lake up in the northern woods of Wisconsin, and while everybody else was back at the cabin, I started to wander through the woods a little bit along the shoreline of the lake. Now, this was a place where there weren't fences, so you could just go from property to property unhindered. Uh, it was also mostly summer cottages from people who lived in the Chicago area, and this being the middle of October, there were not many people around. So I was freely wandering along the shore, and I came to a, a property where the dock went out into the water, and it was directly pointing to the sunset, which was just beginning. So I walked out to the end of the dock, sat down, enjoyed the sunset. There were a few boats zipping around out on the lake, and I thought to myself, surely none of them would belong to this dock or this property. The likelihood of that is very small. And then at that moment, one of them decreases the speed, turns its nose, and starts coming my way. And I'm thinking, surely it will turn aside and change course at some point. But it steady on, straight for the dock. And I'm sitting there panicking and trying to calculate what to do. Now they've seen me. They're close enough to see me. It's too late to get up and run away or that would only arouse suspicions. So I just sit there and in my panic and not knowing what to do, I did something unthinkable, incredibly rash. I stood up and once they were in shouting distance, I started shouting, what are you doing in my boat? Who do you think you are driving my boat to my dock? Okay, no, I didn't do that. No. <laughs> because that would be unthinkable. That would be nuts. Instead, I stood there, beat red, and when they were in shouting distance, I said, ahoy there. Uh, good, good, great day to you. Uh, you come up here often? Hey, throw me the rope. I'll tie it around the dock, and I, you know, I'll serve you in that way. I'm just here to serve. It's very embarrassing, but what I did not do is I, I did not shout at them, who do you think you are? Why are you driving my boat? because that would be ridiculous and unthinkable. And that's exactly what the tenants in the story are doing. So we'll be walking through Luke chapter 20. You can turn there in your Bibles if you want. And this parable has a number of absurdities in it. There are some things that are just unthinkable to the point that at the end of the story, the, the people respond, surely not. <laughs> so many absurdities, but but two in particular stand out, the behavior of the tenants, that they reject the fruit that rightly belongs to the owner and then kill the son thinking they would receive the ownership. That's absurd. But there's a second absurdity, the behavior of, of the owner and his son. So we're going to talk about both of those absurdities and how the one reveals something important about human nature and the other reveals something very important about the unthinkable love of God. So Jesus is telling this parable, and His purpose is to reveal to the people, and particularly to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the priests, that they are blind. They're missing it. They don't get it. But in order to understand why He's telling this parable, we have to back up just a little bit. So in the whole story of the gospel, the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and, and Jewish leaders, it takes up a lot of real estate in the gospel. It's an important theme, part of the story. If you'll even remember that the last several weeks in Lent, every gospel reading that's come from Luke has had this element in it. In the backdrop, there are leaders, Pharisees, scribes, teachers, who are opposing Jesus. They're mad at Him. They're feeling challenged by Him, and He's telling parables in response. Finally, it comes to, to Holy Week. At this point in the story, the triumphal entry has already happened. Jesus is in Jerusalem only days away from His death and crucifixion. He knows this. And as he enters into the city in the triumphal entry, whereas before in the story he's saying, 
shh, don't tell people that I'm the Messiah. Now everything changes, and he says, the time is now. Let it be known, I am he, and I am here. He's bold about being the Messiah. And as he comes into the city, the next thing he does, he clears out the temple. He overturns tables. He basically shuts down the temple for the afternoon. It would be like if you walked into the Vatican at St. Peter's Basilica and just said, all right, we're shutting down evening mass. It would be unthinkable. What a scandal. And so because of this, the authorities come to Jesus. Now, to understand the parable, we really need to know what happens in the story right before. So look in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. So one day as Jesus was in the temple teaching, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and said, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Basically, they're saying, who do you think you are? And Jesus comes right back to them and he says, John the Baptist, why didn't you believe him? The crowds, they saw that his authority was from heaven. Why didn't you see it? Similarly, my authority, the crowds all see, they all know, they see that I'm from heaven. Why don't you see it? He challenges the leaders. Why are you blind to who I am? And here's the tragic irony in this. These leaders, the thing that they were longing to see, all that they claimed to be setting their hope on was right there in front of them. The hope of Israel, the redemption of the people of God, even the God whom they claimed to serve was standing right in front of them and they missed him. They could not see. And we do the same thing. Preoccupied with managing our lives, are things going the way that I had hoped? Preoccupied with our tasks and responsibilities, our hopes and plans, we miss Jesus in everyday life. He's right in front of us, and we don't see him. And he says to us, look, everything you're working for the meaning and the purpose that you seek, the satisfaction of your deepest desires, it's all found in me, and I'm right here. If you let go of control, if you trust in me, you'll see me, and you'll find in me all that you are hoping for. But they were too busy trying to keep control on everything they did not see. So Jesus tells this parable to reveal their blindness. And while he's doing it, he turns the tables. They come in saying, who do you think you are? And he tells this parable, and in a sense, he's saying, who do you think you are? I'm the son of the owner. You're tenants. You're stewards. You're acting like you own the place. Who do you think you are? In this story, the tenants are really clearly the leaders, the Jewish leaders. The vineyard oftentimes, and this is from prophetic literature, represents Israel itself, the owner is God. The son is the son of God, Jesus. And the messengers are like the prophets that have come before, telling Israel to repent. And even we find at the end of Second Chronicles, listen to what one of the old prophets says. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising their words and scoffing at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people and there was no remedy. That's describing why Jerusalem was dis destroyed in the first place. And Jesus is telling this parable and saying the same thing is happening. You've rejected all the prophets and the messengers, including John the Baptist, who's the most recent. 
And unlike other parables, this parable is more prophetic. It's more a prediction. It, it more closely mirrors actual events that are about to take a place that week. Jesus will be rejected and killed. So it's mirroring actual events in real life. So if you turn to verse 9, Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching. The crowds are all around. The, the leaders are there as well. And he says, a man planted a vineyard, and then he let it out. He rented it to tenants and then went away into a far country. And then when the time came, he sent a messenger, a servant, to go get some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. So then he sends another. Same thing happens. Then he sends another. Same thing happens. And now what? Verse 13. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But instead, the tenants see the son, and they say to themselves, this is the heir. If we kill him, we can have the inheritance. We can own the vineyard. So they do. And now, what does the owner do? Well, now the owner comes. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And the people say, surely not. There are too many absurdities in this story. We can't handle it. And he responds with a quote from the psalm. What does it mean then that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? In other words, you're rejecting me as king of Israel, but I am the king of Israel. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Quick note on verse 18 there because it can be a little confusing. Uh, the patristic interpretation is pretty consistent that this is actually referring to the two comings of Christ, that everyone who falls on that stone are those in Jesus' first coming, those who were blind. They didn't see who He was, and so they rejected Him, and they stumbled, and they're broken upon the truth of who He is. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This refers to the second coming of Jesus when he comes in power and great glory. And there will yet be those who at that day will still refuse and reject him, and they will be crushed by the truth of who he is. It's helpful because that word cornerstone can mean both a stone in the foundation, in the ground. It can also mean a stone that's the centerpiece of an archway. So they stumble on him in his first coming, but then the stone falls upon those who don't believe at his second coming. Also noteworthy, look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at the very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. This is unusual because normally when Jesus tells a parable, people don't understand what he's talking about. They turn, did, did you understand that? No, okay, let's go ask him. But this time it's saying they knew what he was saying and they knew who he was talking to. It was not ambiguous. They came to him saying, who do you think you are? And very clearly, he turns the table and he says, who do you think you are? And in this parable, the actions of the tenants, we read it and we think this is unthinkable. It could only be explained by a profound self-deception. They could only act this way if there was in some way a way that they thought they were owners and masters. No one would ever act this way in real life. And that's precisely why Jesus is telling the story to say, but that is in fact what the Jewish leaders were doing because they couldn't give up control. They could not handle the challenges that Jesus had been bringing them. He challenged them on their lust for money. He challenged them on their lust for fame, recognition, and honor, and being known. He challenged them 
most of all on their power, how they wanted to hold control and have power. He said, in my kingdom, you have to give up all these. You have to despise these things. And they couldn't. They couldn't let go, and it blinded them to who he was and what he was doing. So in this parable, Jesus is telling the story to reveal that blindness. But along the way, he accomplishes something else that's even more important in the long run. He reveals something about about the heart of God. Remember, I said there were two absurdities, two unthinkables in the story. The second one is the owner and his son and how they behaved in the story. It's unthinkable, and yet it shows us something really important about the love of God, something we do not want to miss. So let's think about the owner and the son, and what do they reveal to us about the father and the son? Well, we see, first of all, that the owner is generous, right? Look at verse 9. He builds the vineyard. He, he, he digs, the vi- puts uh, a fence around it. He does the work. That takes a lot of work to make a vineyard. He's the one that does the work. And then he lets it out to these tenants, and he does so without charging them any extra rental fee other than when I come, I, I want to have some of the fruit. But beyond that, there's no extra rental fee to work the land. So what has he done? He has given them a livelihood. He's provided for them a way to work and earn their keep. And how, how is that like us? how the Lord has provided us our breath, our very life, everything we need for our life and for our good, and yet we can only think about the things that we don't have. But God is generous. He's also gracious. There's so many chances. Four chances to repent, to turn around, And each time, the reason he keeps sending more is he's hoping maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe this time they'll turn their hearts around. Anybody else in the same situation, it would have been lights out for these wicked tenants after the first offense, and yet he sends again and again and again, and finally four times. God is gracious. He is slow to anger. Though do take note. In the story, eventually the master, the owner, comes and brings punishment upon those who persist in their stubbornness. This tells us something really important about the graciousness of God. You see, there are two errors that we can fall into. The truth is God is slow to anger, but one error you can fall in is to think He's quick to anger. God is just angry. He's angry all the time, and He's quick to anger. And the truth, that's false. That is not true. God is slow to anger. In the beginning, before He created everything, God was holy. He was love. He was eternal. God was Trinity. God was good. He was not angry. Anger is not an eternal characteristic of who God is. It's not part of His nature. It's simply His response to evil. So He is slow to anger, not quick. But the second error goes in the opposite direction. And it could be when you think, oh, a good God would never punish anyone. Well, that's not true either. He's slow to anger. He waits, and He's so patient, and He waits, and He waits, but He does not wait forever. But how many chances He gives them? One, two, three, and finally He sends His beloved Son a fourth chance 
So we learn that God is gracious and slow to anger. Another thing we see in this parable, and to me it's, it's another absurdity, He really cares about the fruit, doesn't He? He keeps going after the fruit, and I read this and I think, why? You're sending your messengers at great risk to them. Finally, you send your beloved son. Why are you doing this? Just give up. Move on. Cut your losses. It's just fruit, man. And here to understand why does he do this, we have to bust out of the parable and take a look at what is the parable pointing to? What's the real world reality that this is showing us? God isn't after fruit. What does the fruit stand for? It stands for you and me. It stands for us. God doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your stuff. When He asks you to give money, it's just as a sign and and a symbol that you're giving Him your whole self. He wants you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants love from you as a response to the love and the generosity and the graciousness that He's constantly pouring out on you. He wants you. And we know this because the next story, they come to Him and they say, all right, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? He says, bring me a coin. He looks at the coin and He says, whose image is that? And say, well, that's Caesar. Okay. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Where do we find the image of God? It's not on coins. People are the image of God. You and me, we are the image of God. Give to God what is God's. What's the fruit that He's seeking? Nothing less than you yourselves in a relationship with you. And now let's talk about the Son another absurdity, unthinkable. Surely the son has seen messenger after messenger come back beaten and empty-handed, and yet he goes. Not only this, but he goes without power, without any weapons, without an army. And yet we know that the owner has all these things because at the end of the story, the owner exercises his power. He comes and he brings judgment upon the wicked tenants. He has the ability to do that. He could have done that with his son, but the son comes alone and empty-handed, vulnerable, meek. Why? In the hopes that his presence, his meekness, and his vulnerability would turn the hearts of the tenants towards him without having to use force. Don't you see how gracious he is? At great risk to himself, in, in studying for the sermon, I came across an incredible true story about the king of Jordan from about 30 or 40 years ago. So the king heard word that 75 of his top military officials were at that moment plotting to overthrow his government. They were planning a coup. So he called for a helicopter, and he flew in the city to that barracks where they were all meeting, landed on the roof, climbed down a ladder, and literally dropped into the meeting and said, here I am. You can kill me now, but do not do this thing that you are planning, or thousands will die, and our country will be in upheaval for years to come. But here I am. You can kill me now. And according to the story, they fell on their knees, they kissed his hand, and they were his servants for life. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing. In his first coming to the earth, he does not come with power. He doesn't come and say, convert or die. He comes in meekness all alone with no weapons, no army. And we see that when he's arrested and when he's hanging on the cross, he says very clearly, I could call upon the angels, the armies of heaven to come and rescue me and execute judgment upon you, but I'm coming first in meekness and vulnerability and all alone because I am hoping that you will give me your hearts 
that you will soften your hearts and turn to me. And oh, I love in this story, I see two things together about Jesus that I just love. He's so bold. Here he is proclaiming every day in the temple. He's, he's confident in who he is and what his mission. He knows he's the Messiah. He's preaching every day knowing that half the people in the crowd are out for his blood. He's so bold and he's so meek because he knows ultimately I'm coming not to force my way upon them, but to offer myself alone, naked, vulnerable, and in the hopes that they will turn their hearts to me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the stories of the Pharisees or, or Israel rejecting God over and over again, I, there's a part of me that thinks, oh, I would never do that. But you want to know what? <laughs> That's exactly what the Pharisees said. In another story, they tell Jesus, if we had lived at the time of our forefathers, we would not have rejected the prophets. And he says to them, are you kidding? Yes, you would have, because that's what you're doing right now. Better to say instead, you know what? I probably would have been a Pharisee. If Jesus had walked into my town 2,000 years ago and began to mess with my control, I probably would have been a Pharisee. And the only thing that keeps me from being a Pharisee right now is the fact that I'm saying I probably would have been a Pharisee. And so for us, truth and humility begs us to remind ourselves that we are susceptible to the same spiritual blindness. But the good news and what I believe so strongly in preparing for this sermon is that Jesus is here this morning precisely because he wants to heal the eyes that are blind. Where every one of us has areas where we're blind to him. So where are you blind? Where are you missing God and what he's doing in your life right in front of you? Well, let me give you one helpful diagnostic for how to know. Where, where am I blind? And it's to answer this question. Where are you angry at God? Where do you have anger in your heart towards Him? The Pharisees were angry people. They were angry and frustrated, and this kept them from seeing God when He was right there. So where are you angry? Frustrated at God about how your life is going or about any particular aspect of your life? Things aren't going how you expected. And this is especially difficult when you're trying to do the right thing. Come on, God, I, I'm trying to do the right thing. Where are you? And there's anger and there's frustration. And we begin to feel like the tenants when the owner first comes and says, can I have some of the fruit? And we feel put upon by God. He just asks so much of me. And it's hard to see him as generous, gracious, and good. Instead, we see him more as like a tax or debt collector coming to make his call. For some of you, it's as basic as your Christian identity. For you, being a Christian feels like just one more thing you got to do. You come to church sometimes. You try to live the Christian life, but secretly inside you're wondering, is this, is this even worth it? And just to pause on that for a moment, for you to have any anger at God is actually really normal. In fact, all of us experience this in one way or another in, in different times and for different reasons and in different places of our lives. So there's no condemnation. There's no shame on you for having anger at God. 
And in fact, it can be like when you have a pain, that pain is directing you to a wound that needs to be addressed. So when you identify where there's anger in your life towards God, that can be a clue. This is where you're blind to where he's at, at work in your life. And the incredible good news is that place where you are angry, that's the very place where this morning the Lord wants to work a healing in your life. He wants to move powerfully in your life. He wants to open your eyes so that you can see him and receive from him all that he has for you, particularly in that area where you're most frustrated and angry with him. Whether it's health, money, relationships, your work, your family, your time, a particular set of circumstances, or just the general course that your life has taken. Where in your life are you angry or frustrated towards God? And His invitation to you this morning is, let go. Surrender that area to me. Renounce the delusion that you were ever in control, and then trust in me, especially about this very thing. And then be healed of your blindness And I promise you, you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It will no longer be, oh, he asks so much of me. And instead, it will become, oh, he has given so much to me. I want to finish here imagining about the rest of the story. We see a really important detail there in verse 16. The owner comes, he destroys the wicked tenants, but then he gives the vineyard to others. This is remarkable. They're no longer, the new owners are no longer tenants renting out. They're owners together with the owner. It's like when Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Or perhaps you know that if you are in Christ, you've been adopted by God, you've been made a co-heir, and the inheritance that belongs to Jesus, you fully share in. The full inheritance of the kingdom of God is yours. And isn't it terribly ironic that the very thing that the wicked tenants were after, the inheritance and ownership, now is being freely given to those who believe in Jesus. So if we were to fill out the rest of the story, if we were to tell this parable, if it were to keep going, right? So Jesus told the parable, and it mimicked events in his life, but then he stopped. What if we picked up where he left off and said, how would the parable keep going? Well, according to the life of Jesus and what happened after this, if the parable kept going, the son would come back. He'd come back from the dead. He would also come back to the vineyard. And he would come to these new owners, and he would say, all right, now it's no longer that I want you to work for me. I want you to work with me. Jesus said, whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The son would come back to the vineyard and say, "Ah, let's do this together. Jesus wants to come into the vineyard of your life or the different vineyards of your time, money, whatever. He wants to work with you, alongside you, showing how to be more fruitful in your life. He says, I want to show you how to parent. I want to show you how to work your job, whatever job it may be, in such a way that you you bring pleasure to me and you bear kingdom fruit in your job. I want to show you how to love the people in your life, especially those who are hard to love. I want to bring that fruit in your life. I want to work alongside you in the vineyard. Jesus will show you how to bear fruit and then it gets better. There will be a harvest, and he's going to take those grapes from your vineyard. He's going to take that fruit, but instead of going off with it to the far country, he's going to stay right there. 
and he's going to make wine. And he's going to use the grapes of your vineyard to, to make wine of joy and gladness. And he's going to call you to a feast. You see, the Lord is not a debt collector. He's a generous mentor. He's not wanting you to work for him. He's wanting you to work with him. And in a moment, we're actually going to do this. We're going to go to the table, to that feast. So now offer him your life, your whole self, all that you are, your labor and your loves. Pour that out before him, and he will take the fruit of your life. And he's going to make wine, and he's going to give it back to you to nourish your soul and to strengthen you in his love and to pour out his joy upon you. That's that's the kind of God you serve. That's who He is. So don't hold anything back. Do not be blind anymore to the goodness of God right in front of you and the richness of the inheritance that is already yours in Christ Jesus. Instead, repent of any blindness. Receive the healing of your sight and come join the feast. Amen.